Welcome back to the Let's Chat Healthcare podcast. My name is Laura and I am the host and I am also an emergency room nurse. In this special episode, we are speaking with Dr. Goldberg. Dr. Goldberg is a pediatric emergency department doctor and he is also a transport medicine doctor. Alongside this, he also is a assistant professor of pediatrics. He co-chairs a special pathogen program at the hospital that he works at. And he also serves as medical director of his hospital's emergency management program. That's an awesome resume, and I'm super excited to have him on. Just as a quick disclaimer, the Let's Chat Healthcare podcast is a place where people share their healthcare experiences, and it is not a medical advice platform. So if you have any medical advice questions, please contact your doctor. On that note, let's get right into the episode. I'm super excited to share this with you. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to be notified when new episodes are released. And you can find us on social media at Let's Chat Healthcare. I hope you guys enjoy our first filmed podcast. Dr. Goldberg was a great guest, and I'm so excited for you guys to hear what he has to say. And without further ado, here is Dr. Goldberg. Hi, Dr. Goldberg. Thanks for joining me today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you coming on this morning, especially because I know that you work in the ER, so your schedule is like super busy and crazy and you work all the shifts like night shift. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, the schedule is pretty crazy, as you know, but I didn't actually know you had a podcast until a few weeks ago, <laughs> so I was pretty uh, psyched to come on and talk with you. Oh, thanks. I... I don't know if people know, but we work together. And um, sometimes I feel like it's a fine line being like, hey, to my healthcare friends, like, hey, I have a podcast about healthcare because I know that like, I don't know, like I want to put, I want to put a good representation out there and I don't want people to feel like I'm like saying negative things about it at all. But it's really here to just like have people in healthcare on and patients on and just like share their experiences so people can better understand like what goes on. Yeah, I think that's super important. People don't really have a great clue what happens behind the curtain. And yeah, uh, yeah. just to hear people that work in the field talk about it, I think is yeah. uh, helpful for them to understand what we're yeah. thinking, what's going through our heads, and a little bit more about how the whole system operates. Even just like listening to it beforehand so you have a better idea going into it because even as maybe like a new patient, you're like, I have no idea what I'm about to experience. I have no idea what's about to happen. So even just like listening to it as a possible patient in the future, I think is really big. Sure. Okay. Um, maybe we can start by you kind of telling us your background and kind of about yourself. So I grew up in New York. So I was born and raised on Long Island, and I try and hide the New York accent, the Long Island accent, the best I can, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes. sometimes it still comes out uh, when I get excited or with certain words. Uh, but I grew up there. I went to college in Western New York at the University of Rochester. So I was there for four years. I did EMS there, so I was an EMT. And then afterwards, I went to medical school. I actually went overseas. I was at Tel Aviv University. So I was oh, wow. in Israel for four years for medical school before coming back to New York. 
where I did residency at Stony Brook University Hospital. So that's one of the uh, SUNY, the state university schools. And I did three years of pediatric residency. I stayed for a chief residency year. And then I came out to the West Coast where I did an emergency medicine fellowship in pediatrics and I stayed. So that's a little bit about my That is a lot of education. (laughs) That's (laughs) a lot of years. (laughs) I, I think it's so it's four years of medical school four years of residency and chief residency, three years Mm -hmm. of fellowship. So what is that? Four, eight, uh, 11 years before I really started practicing. Mm -hmm. How was medical school in Tel Aviv? Is is there like an international, I'm sure there is like a regulation committee that like regulates medical schools like all around the world? There is. So uh, first of all, going to medical school in Tel Aviv was amazing. It's a super fun city, uh, very liberal, uh, a lot of fun. So it's very work hard, play hard. And Mm -hmm. we had a fantastic experience in our clinicals there. We worked directly with the, the faculty physicians. A lot of times I feel in the United States that students get you know, sometimes pawned off on the junior doctors and the junior Mm. faculty. Over there, we worked exclusively with them. So it was a very, it was a great experience. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, yes. So coming from an international medical school, you are classified as an international medical graduate. And Mm. depending on where that school is located, what country, it's different um, rules. regulations and barriers you go through, but there is a regulating body in the United Mm -hmm. States that oversees that. Mm, That's cool. So what do you like to do besides school? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, as you can see behind me, I'm a bit of an audio nerd. So I have my music collection and devices. I ride a one wheel, (laughs) uh, classic emergency medicine the classic emergency medicine, like crazy physician nurse lifestyle, we were thought as <laughs> being quite adventurous. So I have mm-hmm. my one wheel and then uh, just normal things, family, friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're, we're real people with real lives outside of work, mm-hmm. despite what some people think. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, one thing I did um, when I was like doing some research well, actually, a lot of my research I do on is on Reddit. And a lot of people were saying the pro of being an emergency physician is that when you leave work, you get to most of the time you leave work at work. So like in your off time, you um, are able to like kind of move on and like just be able to separate yourself from that. Do you feel like that? Or do you feel like on your off days, you're even kind of working? I, I love emergency medicine for that reason. I think yeah. a lot of people do. The lifestyle is yeah. a little bit flexible with your schedule. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, a lot of physicians and advanced practice uh, folks at the hospital will often have service weeks where they work for maybe two weeks on, two weeks off service. And when mm. they're off service, maybe they have to go work in a clinic. Mm-hmm. Uh, emergency medicine, they just say, hey, we need you to work X amount of shifts per month. Mm-hmm. And uh, you try and you can flex your schedule around that. So you can be like, I want mm-hmm. three days off here. I want to work this night. I don't want to work that night. So it does allow a lot of flexibility. And then when you go home, no one's paging you and calling you uh-huh. with questions at two in the morning. I will say, however, at large academic medical centers, a lot of people 
uh, myself included, wear multiple hats. So we do have administrative responsibilities outside of seeing patients. So there is some work from home, but it's a lot. Uh, it's a lot. It's a lot less than say someone who's answering pages at two in the morning. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because um, before I worked in the medical field. Like I never noticed this, but now that I worked, I see people at like grocery stores and stuff getting calls <laughs> and I like hear them talking about like medical things. So I don't know. It's just something you like become aware of and you see it all around you. <laughs> and I see sometimes like um, most of the time I they're like with their spouse and the spouse like understands that like this person just needs to like go and do their thing and then they just kind of keep going. So. <laughs> Yeah, I remember I was on vacation and I was with another physician and we were up uh, in Big Sur, which is a part of California, beautiful along Mm -hmm. the coast. And that person happened to be on call for the hospital Mm -hmm. and had gotten a page, but we found out the cell phone did not work in that area. Oh my gosh. So we had to drive maybe about 30 minutes back to cell phone reception (laughs) in order to answer that call. I feel like you introduce someone, you introduce yourself to someone, you say, I'm a doctor, you say, I work in the emergency room. They're like, wow, that's awesome. Like, that's crazy. What if they asked you like, so what do you do? Because it's kind of like, I feel like in the emergency room, it's so random and it's like a bunch of different things piled up into one. So how, how do you describe your job to someone? It, it's difficult. I think people yeah, have yeah. Uh, glorified vision of what happens in the emergency department, whether yeah, it's from I think so too. TV shows like ER, which was a very influential show during my upbringing, or mm. Scrubs or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, although it's nothing like that. It's not like Grey's Anatomy <laughs> at all. Um, so I, I like to think we're, we're problem solvers. So mm-hmm. uh, every patient is coming in because they have a problem. Mm-hmm. And it could be just they struggle to get access to the healthcare system because either they're uninsured or underinsured, uh, their, their doctors can't see them in a timely fashion in the outpatient setting, uh, or they have a, a severe uh, illness or injury and they need to be seen right away. And uh, it's our job to kind of help them through that, figure out, do they need emergency services? If so, mm-hmm. where are we going to get them, those services, in our hospital, in someone else's hospital? And mm-hmm. if they don't, helping them get reconnected to the outpatient community. And uh, a lot of that is problem solving. We have a big team of social workers, uh, registration staff that helps navigate the difficulties and often a lot of confusion around the mm-hmm. US healthcare system and the insurance yeah. systems. <laughs> yeah. I I I just posted on Instagram the other day about like insurance and medical billing and it's so confusing even for me who works in healthcare I like have to ask registration like 40 40,000 questions a day because I'm like I don't know I don't know this one so yeah it's very confusing and I wonder if that's part of I'm sure it is like part of the reason why ERs are so busy and sometimes we have like 10 to 12 hour waits even longer sometimes it's like it makes sense because the healthcare system is so confusing and I feel like it's I can't imagine how confusing it is for someone that doesn't work in healthcare like I mean 
I, my husband, he doesn't work in healthcare and he's just like the, the questions that he ha- asks, like give me a little light inside to see how confusing it is to someone who even doesn't work in healthcare. Yeah. I think you could divide your friends into people whose significant other is in healthcare with them and those that aren't. Yeah. And for the ones that uh, aren't, uh, it's often like a window into them and when you're around with friends or other people in the healthcare field, they're just uh-huh. kind of nodding their head. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or sometimes like all my husband's friends are artsy and they're like, so how's, how's the emergency room? And I'm like, good. And like, that's how far the conversation goes because it's like, it's so hard to explain to someone without like going super in depth. And then sometimes it's like too heavy for the moment. And exactly. it's like, yeah, so it's, you have to tone it hard. back a little bit. You might have a yeah. story from your shift or your week, and then you realize, huh, maybe I really shouldn't be offloading this yeah. onto <laughs> my significant other or yeah. a, a random friend because it is a lot. It is, definitely yeah. is a lot. It's not all blood and guts, uh, as we yeah. kind of alluded to, but um, when you're there, you're there to work and it's intense. Yeah. And you could be there for, you know, eight to 12 hours. I know sometime on the nursing side, you might might even stay longer than that. Is, is yeah. that right? Yeah. Sometimes they have us or they, they don't make us, but like sometimes we stay over for 16. <laughs> right. But um, I think another thing is that because we see it like for nurses, we see it three times a week for you. You're seeing it often too. I don't know how many times a week exactly, but like I think that it might not, we get used to hearing stories about it. So I feel like when I talk to people that aren't in healthcare too, they, it comes across heavier than I mean it to, because for me, it's just something that I see every day. Um, not saying that it isn't serious or anything, but sometimes when I try to tell someone about my day, it comes across more heavy because it's not necessarily something that they see every day. Exactly. And they're not yeah. going to want to hear the story about the person that came in because they thought they needed an x-ray or a CAT scan and their insurance didn't cover it. Their doctor didn't know what to do and sent them to the emergency room. That's not <laughs> the story they're trying to pull out of you, but also, yeah, yeah. you know, they don't need to hear maybe the details of say a cardiac arrest or something. Along yeah, those lines. Yeah. I feel like that's another reason why we're so busy is because when people don't know what to do with people, they send them to us. <laughs> They're That's like, I don't know what to do with you. Go to the ER. <laughs> we're the problem solvers. So, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, go to the ER, go to the ER, whether it's uh, insurance issue, um, the mm-hmm. primary care doctor just doesn't have time to fit them in for a sick visit. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of reasons. And even, you know, time, time is a major commodity in healthcare. So maybe... Mm-hmm. A 10-minute phone call could have pulled enough information from a patient to realize they can't, they don't need to go to the emergency room. But yeah. a lot of practices don't have 10 minutes to give to all of yeah. those phone calls, unfortunately. And I, I, that's definitely one of the big lacking, uh, the big lacking resources in our healthcare system is uh, yeah. people, people hours and time. I feel like another huge part of it is liability. Like I have a lot of people that come in that um, we don't that don't necessarily always need to be in the emergency room because like they call the nurse hotlines and I've actually never called one, but I'm pretty sure it would make sense. They wouldn't be allowed to say, don't go to the emergency room, right? Don't they always just have to say, if you feel like it's an emergency, go just because of liability wise? Every practice is different. 
when yeah. I was in residency, for example, the resident physicians would answer those phone calls after hours. Oh, okay. And we could kind of talk through with them for five, 10 minutes. We could even speak with our supervising physician and get feedback about what to tell the family and avoid those mm-hmm. emergency department visits. But once again, that's a large academic medical center with lots of trainees. A lot of private practices or outpatient clinics uh, don't have the resources to uh, kind of triage all those questions. So as you said, a lot of times the answer for liability's sake is just, if you're concerned, go to the emergency department. I can't give you specific advice over the phone. I mean, we get like 20 calls a day of people just calling the ER asking if they should go in, but we just say the same thing. (laughs) If you're concerned, you have to come in. And then they're like, oh, can you tell me the wait time? And I was like, well, it changes every 30 minutes. It could be 10 hours. It could be like 20 minutes. So. <laughs> and that's a difficult concept for patients in the emergency department as well, is that you know the wait time's not the same for everyone. We kind of mm-hmm. have to triage people. That's a large part of the job and decide mm-hmm. you know, maybe someone's been waiting 10 hours, but someone sicker comes in and they get to cut the line. And that's Mm -hmm. a a very difficult conversation to navigate with patients and families. Yeah. And I think another hard thing is like, it's hard for them to understand that we, well, when I sit out in the waiting room, the hardest thing I feel like for them to understand is that just because they're waiting longer doesn't mean they don't need to be seen because um, obviously if they wait out for a long time, they're okay to wait. But like maybe times we have to check for appendicitis or something like those kids are stable, but maybe they still need to be seen. But then I think that one of the hardest things to understand is that, hey, your kid does need to be seen, but he can just wait longer. And I think that's kind of difficult. And side note, I have so much respect for the people (laughs) that sit out in the triage booths at the emergency departments across the country. That is a tough job. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's fielding constant questions, a lot of customer service. I sometimes walk out there to look at the waiting room and I'll sit in that box for five minutes. So much respect to all the people that do that. A lot of times the physicians are are spared from that part of the job, which is extremely difficult. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think now that I'm thinking about it, I maybe should have an episode just talking about that job. <laughs> but I, I I just have to be careful because like um, it's every patient is different. So it's just hard to like we were saying, it's hard to even group or explain our job just because every patient that comes in is different and like everyone gets treated different. Um, oh, one thing that I was thinking is I wanted to talk about the nursing shortage and <laughs> if you feel that as a physician and how you feel like it, like if you feel like that impacts your job, because I know that I know even like patients that come in, they're like, Oh, like you, like the nursing shortage is bad right now. But I think it's hard to understand like what that actually means and what impact that has on patients or like the flow. So it's okay if it doesn't, but I was wondering if that has affected your job at all or had an impact on it. Certainly. Uh, So, uh, I mean, during the COVID-19 pandemic, there was such uh, geographical needs for staffing, specifically with nurses. So Mm -hmm. there was a lot of mobility and travel nurses going from site to site. There was a Mm -hmm. lot of nurses that may have been staff nurses, meaning they Mm -hmm. work for one 
you know, hospital or organization who then decided to maybe make the switch to traveling. Um, Mm -hmm. So we've seen a lot of turnover, I would say, uh, Mm -hmm. in in staff in departments across the country, which Mm -hmm. makes it difficult because you actually, you become a team, you train together, you work together. And then it's really sad when someone you maybe got to know and work with for a few months uh, gets up and then moves to another another organization. And Mm -hmm. we we definitely feel the shortage uh, for sure. Uh, There's some days where we might not be able to operate all of the zones and beds that we are capable of operating. And that's Mm -hmm. not just in the emergency department, but that could be inpatient beds. So Mm -hmm. when a hospital has, you know, when someone says the hospital has no beds, is that because Mm -hmm. they don't have actual like space actual to put patients yeah. or is it because we don't have people to staff those beds yeah. safely and a lot of times it is the latter where there are physical beds but there's no staff a big issue we're seeing in the northwest right now in the united states is hospitals unable to discharge patients who are ready for discharge because there is no skilled nursing facility that has mm. room or staffing to take them. So there are some mm. hospitals in the Northwest that are at 130% of their licensed bed capacity because they have nowhere to send patients who are ready to go home or to a, oh. a, or a skilled nursing facility. So it's not just you know in the emergency department or in the hospital, but the problem kind of cascades all the way down to mm-hmm. the outpatient setting. Yeah, you know, now that you mentioned that, I had a mom who told me that she her kid was in the ICU for like four months, but it ended up being eight months because they couldn't find someone to help with the home care. Like they didn't even need to go to a facility. They could have gone home, but they needed like someone to be there at the home with them. And they just like maybe like three times a week and they couldn't find someone. So they had to stay an extra four months in the hospital because of it. Yeah. And then there's a component of burnout. So People, you know, mm-hmm. nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists, the whole healthcare team. We've been working with our heads down for two years, trying to keep up with COVID nineteen, all the latest guidelines, policies, procedures, algorithms, which are changing on a weekly basis. And a lot of people just, you know, suffered from you know physical and mental fatigue, and said, you know what, I, I need a break from working in, say, the emergency department or the hospital and go work for, you know, a more, uh, you know, an outpatient, you know, medical facility that maybe has a more nine to five schedule, not Mm -hmm. dealing with acute, you know, an emergent care. And, you know, you can't, I I don't blame those. I don't blame those people. It's been very, Mm -hmm. it's been very difficult, but that also contributes to kind of the drain from the large medical centers. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really difficult. And I think that like we were saying, like it's hard to realize the impact that it has on the hospital because most people know, hey, we're short on nurses or we know like people that work in the emergency room or like high risk areas are burnt out. But like, what does that actually mean? Like, how does that affect me when I go into the hospital, you know? So it's hard. Okay. Um, maybe we could talk about... Uh, kind of a hot topic right now. <laughs> and um, so I wanted to, so this podcast is not really like a medical advice podcast. It's more of like 
experience in healthcare. So definitely like take it from that perspective if you can. But maybe we could just talk about monkeypox real quick, like and say like what it is. What what is monkeypox? Sure. So uh, monkeypox is a virus uh, similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not similar, but another virus being COVID-19 that we've been mm-hmm. all too familiar with. Which and, means antibiotics don't help it. <laughs> yeah. So in general, antibiotics will not will not help a viral infection. There mm-hmm. is like influenza, which is the seasonal flu, which we've mm-hmm. had for forever. And uh, that's an example of another virus. What's different about monkeypox, say, compared to COVID-19 there's a lot of differences, but the main difference from kind of thinking about it and how our responses to it, monkeypox has been around for decades uh, and it's been studied for decades, whereas COVID-19 was a brand new uh, virus that we had never seen before. We had no research on it. There was no therapeutics when it first started that we were aware of. So that's one big distinguishing factor about monkeypox is we have known about it for decades and it has been studied. Mm. It was really mostly located in Africa. And there mm-hmm. was kind of two parts of Africa that had two different strains or clades of monkeypox. And occasionally we would see cases outside of Africa um, that were usually related to someone traveling. And there's also been an outbreak of monkeypox in the United States, which most people don't realize. In the early 2000s, a bunch of people uh, in the central United States got infected from prairie dogs, pet prairie dogs. Mm. Oh, yeah, I did. I was looking it up. I saw that. Yeah. So it's actually it's an interesting story. Uh, Basically, there was these pet prairie dogs and then there, there was these African small mammals that were imported to the United States and they spent time very close to each other. So the pets (laughs) became infected, but thankfully that did not erupt into the epidemic like we're seeing today, which is uh, quite a bit different. Mm. So what, what's going on right now? Is, is it another outbreak like similar to that? So this outbreak is pretty, uh, it's very different than outbreaks we've seen in the past. Mainly what was seen is in the spring of this year, and especially like May and in, in going into June, that there was lots of cases of monkeypox being reported in Europe that were not associated with travel, mm-hmm. meaning that people were getting it person to person outside of Africa. So mm. this was... Uh, So they didn't really have a source for it. Exactly. So the source was other people. So usually it would Mm -hmm. have to be, you got infected in Africa and you came out to Europe, the United States, wherever. And that, that was it. Maybe, you know, in the past, a healthcare worker might've got infected or, you know, a few other people, but this case it's spreading fairly easily between people, which is making it a lot more difficult to contain. Mm. Mm-hmm. Is it pretty serious? Um, I saw I saw somewhere like I saw a different like serious or I don't know the correct term for it, but like the rate for how serious it is. Like I saw one source that said it was like six percent fatality rate. That's I feel like that's pretty high. Yeah. So we're still learning a lot about this outbreak because it's behaving yeah. quite differently than the ones we've seen in the past. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, um, 
the, the case fatality rate or how many people who become infected die from this uh, mm-hmm. strain, for lack of a better word, um, mm-hmm. is quite low. Um, okay. It seems like it's going to be less than 1%. And mm-hmm. I don't want to speak prematurely or make prophecies that end up mm-hmm. not being correct. But, you know, yeah. there's been tens of thousands of cases and there has been deaths reported, but it is quite rare. Okay. But, you know, ser- serious is a tough word because it, it's serious for anyone yeah. that gets it. So yeah, yeah. it is yeah. not a pleasant disease to have. Um, yeah. You know, you can get extremely painful lesions on your skin Mm -hmm. and your um, what we call in the medical field, mucous membranes. So that's your eyes, nose, mouth, your private parts. And Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it can be excruciating and Mm -hmm. also disfiguring. So these, uh, these, these pox lesions can leave scars on the skin. So for the people Mm -hmm. that get it, it's, it's bad. It's bad. And, we hear in the news like, oh, most people recover. You don't necessarily need therapy. But I, I would argue the people who get this are suffering tremendously. And if I got mm-hmm. it or someone I knew got it, I would be pushing very hard for them to have therapy for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's kind of hard because when you look at healthcare from like a public health perception perspective, it's like this disease isn't affecting that many people. So it's not as serious. But for the people that have it it's like pretty serious and I forgot what the word is but like so for example like my husband has Tourette's and it's pretty it's like considered more rare so not that much funding or research is necessarily put into it like there's not really barely any medication out there for it or things like that and I think it's hard like you're saying like for the people that get it it or the people that have this rare thing it is serious and then those people like so it's hard to balance like how much from a public health perspe- perspective that you like invest into something because you want to invest in everything, obviously. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's it's sad, you know, so mm-hmm. monkeypox traditionally was a disease found in Africa and like a lot of tropical diseases or diseases that are affecting mainly people in uh, developing or poorer countries don't get the same attention from, say, the pharmaceutical companies and um, and uh, researchers. But mm-hmm. you know, it has been researched. Uh, there are there are therapeutics. Interestingly, the therapeutics t- are are related to a disease called smallpox. Mm-hmm. So you can think of monkeypox as kind of a cousin to smallpox. Mm-hmm which was a disease that was really quite impactful and um, Mm -hmm. caused a lot of disease and death in the world prior to vaccination. So Mm -hmm. smallpox has been eradicated, thankfully, due to vaccination. But it Mm -hmm. was found that vaccines and therapies targeted at smallpox also have some effect on monkeypox. So unlike COVID, we did already have some you know, therapeutics in the toolbox that could be Mm -hmm. applied here. Mm -hmm. And then it's spread just by close to close skin contact, right? Because especially like we work with kids, like it's easy for kids to be like all over each other. And then they're given kids give each other all the germs. (laughs) Yeah. I was hearing one of the doctors we worked with, he was saying 
what is the average a kid gets like 12 viruses a year oh i'm sure i yeah, forgot i don't know, I don't know number, he was saying, it's yeah <laughs> yeah it's a lot so th- yeah. this is a hot topic right now um there's a lot of debate about how important certain modes of transmission are meaning mm-hmm. like how you catch it so mm-hmm. it's because very- some people think it's an std but it it's not necessarily an std right yeah so um the ways that this transmits is close intimate contact so mm-hmm. that would be uh touching someone's skin who has the infection um mm-hmm. touching the rash or parts of the rash that kind of flake off the skin and, you know, say, go on a bedsheet or a towel, and then someone uses mm-hmm. that bedsheet or a towel. Those are mm-hmm. the main modes of uh, transmission. There's some debate about how important respiratory is. So as we know mm-hmm. from COVID, you know, it's, it's airborne, it aerosolizes easily, it kind of hangs in the air in rooms. Mm-hmm. But monkeypox is much more difficult to transmit uh, in that fashion. Mm. So it is accepted that it probably transmits through droplets, meaning like if I'm standing face to face with you and little gross spit is coming out of my (laughs) mouth and then, you know, hits you in the face or you breathe it in, then sure. Mm. But uh, it's not airborne in the traditional sense Mm -hmm. where, you know, someone's going to get it on the other side of the room. Mm -hmm. In terms of sexually transmitted infection disease, uh, monkeypox was first kind of spreading rapidly and still is during this epidemic among the uh, LGBTQTI communities and Mm -hmm. uh, particularly uh, men who have sex with men. So, Mm -hmm. um, and that's due to close, uh, tightly knit sexual networks. Um, Mm. There's a lot of uh, skin on skin touching, which is how this virus transmits. But to answer your question, Mm. it is not a um, traditionally what we would refer to as an infection that you have to, that you would acquire from just having sex. Mm -hmm. So you can get it from just touching someone or touching something that that person touched. So Mm -hmm. that's another debate whether, you know, it's being classified as an STI or not. I would argue not to um, call it that because uh, you can very clearly get it just from hanging out Mm -hmm. with someone or touching something. But not as catchy as COVID. I remember I didn't get COVID throughout the whole pandemic, even though I was like always in the rooms. And then with this newer strain, I feel like that was more, um that's easier to get i was in a room i know the patient that i got it from and then both the other nurses that were in the room too both got it at the same time so probably it's not like you're saying it's not as easily transmitted as COVID. (laughs) yeah so in terms of you know uh how we deal with it in the hospital Mm -hmm. we don't we don't have to take the same extreme precautions that we do with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. However, you know, we do wear gowns, we wear gloves, we wear mm-hmm. special um, N95 style masks and eye protection. Mm-hmm. And that's just to, like you said, prevent, you know, staff from getting it. Mm-hmm. But as far as we can tell right now, this is not a disease that you're going to catch, say, mm-hmm. sitting two seats away from someone on the airplane. Mm-hmm. And, 
just going back to our what overcrowds the emergency room is after those patients we have to terminally or like terminally clean like specially clean the rooms which holds up the room for a little bit which also causes a delay in getting people back so just another reason why the er wait time is long (laughs) um awesome well i would love to end talking about maybe what are what is something or some things that you wish people knew either about either about the emergency room or your job particularly or like what is something that you wish that people knew about what you do it could be anything like the er or your job it's kind of a big question yeah (laughs) Uh, I, I think the start is that we are people too, and we are just like the people who are coming to the emergency department uh, mm-hmm. to seek care. Like we said in the beginning, we're problem solvers. So we, we're there to help people. Um, uh, emergency medicine, you know, is not a glamorous lifestyle per se. And we <laughs> they don't call us the Jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We're there to help people. And um, I think a lot of times people think that we are trying to limit the care they receive or not allow them mm-hmm. to get that MRI that they thought they were going to get when they came in or mm-hmm. maybe didn't spend enough time with them when in fact, we're trying to, as best we can, balance the needs of everyone that's coming to the hospital mm-hmm. to seek care. So in ways, we do have to kind of balance our time and what resources we have in the most equitable ways we can. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people might take it personally or think that we just don't care when, mm-hmm. when in fact, it's the opposite. We're, we're trying to make sure that the care is equitable and kind of distributed by need. So mm-hmm. I think that that's one thing. Um, what else? Uh, We're often the last yeah. resort. So I feel like a lot of times they come in being like, hey, can you please just do this? But if we like if we MRI'd everyone, like the wait time would probably be like 40 hours. <laughs> right. <laughs> or something like that. And, um, You know, I think other things that are helpful to know is, you know, when you check into an emergency department, uh, the people who check you in and triage you might have some idea when they first speak to you about how sick you may be and what kind of diagnostic tests you'll need done. Um, Mm -hmm. But a lot of times until we can get someone back into a room, do a full physical exam, get all their vital signs. We often, mm-hmm. we often don't know how much testing and resources might be needed. So, you know, people often get upset if they wait five, six, seven hours to be seen and then have, a, you know, an exam and told they're okay and they can go home. Mm-hmm. Um, I think th- that's, that's a difficult concept for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I it's hard have, to explain because it's like, this is have, a good thing. Yeah, I don't have a, a magic <laughs> right. answer for for that. But, mm-hmm. you know, coming back to we really do care. And we think that mm-hmm. you, um, we understand that, you know, what we call an emergency uh, is not necessarily the same as what a parent or a patient might deem an emergency. And mm-hmm. or you just don't know if what symptom or you know, feeling you're having Mm -hmm. is an emergency. So we help to kind of 
we help to help sort that out. So, mm-hmm. you know, if your if your toe is red, painful, inflamed, and you don't know what's going on with it, you come see us. You know, we help determine. Hey, is that toe infected, and we need to do antibiotics and you know maybe blood testing, or maybe it's just an ingrown toenail, which to that person still stinks. It hurts a lot. Mm-hmm. It's red, but you know they don't necessarily need testing or emergency care. So mm-hmm. we, we help to sort that out for people. I think just coming in with an open mind is the biggest thing. And I know I know it's hard to have an open mind about after a 10 hour wait. Like definitely understand that. But yeah. Does it does it bother you when people look things up on the internet? Honestly, it doesn't it it, it doesn't bother yeah. me too much. I mean, there are it is difficult, I think, for someone to find reputable, Mm -hmm. good resources. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I honestly don't have too much of an issue with that. Mm -hmm. It becomes, it becomes a little bit more stressful and contentious when people might not want to believe you that um, Mm -hmm. what they read might not be the most accurate source. And those Mm -hmm. are more difficult, nuanced conversations. But um, I, I, I am all for people having access to, information mm-hmm. to data and letting them look at it. But I really do feel that having a primary care doctor or a healthcare professional that can help you understand what you're looking at yeah, and yeah. maybe help you sort through it is crucial because it is easy yeah. to get misled or potentially interpret something incorrectly that you see on the internet. Yeah, I can think of, I can think I had a patient one time and he was like 13 and he, he had testicular pain. And the mom told me, well, he looked it up on the internet and it said we have to come in. And like, that's great. Like, that's where the internet really like worked and was helpful. And then I had another patient who was like 100% convinced he had a seizure when he just like actually ended up passing out. But I think that it's important to take what you research with a grain of salt and then come bring it to a professional being like, hey this is what I'm thinking. Like, what do you think? Cause you definitely like, there's, it's easy to misinterpret. Like you're saying, I think things that happen. It's like the totally. famous saying that you have toe pain in the internet will tell you that you have a tumor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, maybe we can end on what's your favorite part about your job. I feel like we've kind of been negative a little, but I want to end on a good note. Like what's your, what's the best thing about your job besides working with me? Obviously. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) No, I I love my job and I love coming to work. Uh, You never know. I I think never, you never really know what you're going to see that day. Whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, someone who maybe works in a heart failure clinic, well, you know, you're going to see a lot of heart failure. Uh, Mm -hmm. For us, we, we really never know what we're going to see. Sometimes it's, cutting rings off of people's fingers that got stuck or (laughs) pulling some foreign object out of some part of someone's body. So it does keep it exciting and interesting. And we do see things Mm -hmm. that we've never seen before. And then we have to figure out how do we, how do we approach this? Who do we call? Mm -hmm. Like, what do we do? Um, Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's what keeps it interesting. Every patient is a puzzle. And keeps me coming to work for sure. Every patient's different. Um, and it's, it's always, it's, it's always interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing all this with us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's awesome. Thank you for having me on. 
That was awesome. Dr. Goldberg is amazing and shared some great experiences with us. I feel like it was really awesome to hear his perspective on the emergency room and yeah, just everything that he shared with us. I hope you guys enjoyed our first ever filmed podcast and I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys thought of it. Don't forget to subscribe to be notified when new episodes are released and you can find us on social media at Let's Chat Healthcare. Thanks for listening. This is Laura and I'll see you next time on Let's Chat Healthcare.